This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's lifestyle demands the best in wireless. And with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data. Coast-to-coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each, including hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers, we got you covered in Canada and Mexico. Plus, text and data in over 210 countries worldwide. All with the best phones or bring your own that's pretty awesome get the best user experience on mobile at pulsecellular.com if you're a loser tune in and you'll be a winner it's the moranalytics podcast talking buffalo sports yankees wwe 80s music and pop culture and now here's your host patrick moran All right, podcast enthusiasts, what's going on? How you doing? Welcome to episode 155 of the Analytics podcast presented today by our friends over at Pulse Cellular. Today is Tuesday, September 24, 2019. Thank you as always for listening and for downloading. If you have not yet subscribed to this future award losing podcast, please go ahead and do so right now. Coming up on today's episode, got two really good segments for you. Featured guest today, my man Marcel Louise Jacques, ESPN.com Buffalo Bills reporter. This is actually Marcel's second time doing this podcast. I originally had him on. It was episode 132 a couple months ago at the end of June. That one was more about his life and his career Matter of fact, when I had Marcel on, he quite literally had just gotten hired by ESPN to cover the Buffalo Bills. And I think it might have been the day before or the day after I talked to Marcel. He was actually literally in the process of moving, physically moving from North Carolina to relocate to Buffalo. That was a fun chat. This one, fun chat too, but it's also different. Again, that first interview was more about Marcel personally getting fans an opportunity to know more about him. This interview today is exclusively, or almost exclusively, about his experience covering his first ever Buffalo Bills home regular season game at New Era Field. Now, if you're a Buffalo Bills fan, if you follow the Bills, if you live in Western New York, you go to the games, you know what that vibe's like. You know that what that atmosphere is like. It's sick. It's off the hook. It's crazy. It's fun. Well, this was Marcel's first experience being around it. He had covered the Buffalo Bills. They did have two preseason home games, but of course, that's not even close to the same. Regular season home games on Sunday are crazy, especially the home opener and especially when the team's already 2-0 and coming in. So anyway, Marcel got to the stadium early, 
before he went into the stadium. In fact, he stopped by Hammer's Lot, got to check out some tailgating there, went into the stadium, took a lap around the concourse just to soak everything in. We talk about that, his the vibe going on or in and around the stadium, what the press box was like, the, the mood in there, the atmosphere, just all that stuff associated with covering your first Buffalo Bills regular season home game. Lots of good stuff in there. I do also sneak in a couple of media-related questions as well. Not a particularly long chat with Marcel, but a very good one. A guy I really like and respect a lot. So I got that coming up for you. Also, immediately following that, I got my man, Tone Pucks, another edition of Pat with Pucks. Today, we're talking about the actual Buffalo Bills game on Sunday. They did defeat Cincinnati 21-17 to move to 3-0 and on the season. A nail-biter. Of course, many people don't think it needed to be a nail-biter, but that's what it was. But a win is a win. 3-0. and Me and Tone break the game down. We spend plenty of time talking about Josh Allen, talking about Dawson Knox, talking about the Bills' defense, talking about the coaching and some of the play calls throughout the game. Lots of good stuff there. And we also spent a couple of minutes talking about the Buffalo Sabres as well. They're about a week and a half out from the start of the regular season. And the lines, practice lines at this point of preseason start to mean something at practice. Early on, they don't really mean anything. But as of right now, I think they do start to mean something. We talk about what the practice lines were as we take this on Monday and give our takes on there. One other thing too, by the way, Again, with the Bills preseason starting next, uh, I think it's next Wednesday or Thursday, I am going to have Lance Lysowski from the Buffalo News Sabres Beat Reporter over at the News. He's going to be on the show next Tuesday, and we're going to have a nice Sabres season preview. But anyway, today me and Tone Bucks talk a little bit about the lines and give our takes for how we think that things are going to play out. So a very busy episode today. Not going to waste any more time here at the top. I want to get right down to business. Two good segments. Let's kick it off right now. First up. My man, again, from ESPN.com, I got Marcel Louis Jacques. Let's do it. All right, I'm now joined by Marcel Louis Jacques, ESPN.com, Buffalo Bills beat reporter. What's going on, man? How you doing? I'm doing great, man. It's nice to actually have a uh, wake up on Monday at home. You know, don't have to worry about getting to the airport, uh, you know, my bag can be okay. My flight delayed. Is my dog okay? I just get to, you know, roll over, go to the living room, and uh, enjoy Buffalo some more. <laughs> yeah, for sure. By the way, for people listening, I did have you on the podcast previously. It was episode 132 in late June, literally right after you got the job with ESPN.com and you were traveling to relocate to Buffalo. So people, if you haven't heard that, go back and tune in. That episode was all about you, your life story, your career, where you came from, all the steps that you got to to get to where you're at today. So definitely fans, go and check that out. But the reason why I wanted to have you on today, and I'm literally only going to take up a couple minutes of your time, is this was the first regular season Buffalo Bills home game that you have ever covered. Obviously, you covered the first two games, but they were on the road this year. So we were back at home this past weekend. And I don't care if you're a fan, if you're a media member, Whatever it may be, your first time in Buffalo for a Bills home game is a pretty big deal because it's a pretty unique experience. I want to get your impressions of that experience. And let's start, by the way, with the tailgating. I saw on Twitter that you took a little bit of time to visit at least one tailgating lot. What was your impression? What was that like? Yeah, I guess I I guess I was at Pinto's tailgate or Red Pinto's tailgate. Um, I don't know. I think I can't tell if it's sarcasm or not. I hope they're not upset with me for not tagging them. I, I literally had no idea where I was, but, uh, it was, 
it was just different than anything I've seen in the NFL. And uh, I don't get a whole lot of time to go explore the lots around, around games I go to. Um, I've seen, uh, I've seen Philadelphia. Uh, I've seen the scene in Pittsburgh as well. Um, but it's just Buffalo was the closest thing that I felt to just a college atmosphere where, you know, just, it's kind of ragtag. Everybody lets loose. Everybody is just so, so exhilarated for, for what's about to happen. It's like, uh, they've just been waiting for, it's like a holiday. They've been waiting for this all year. And, uh, the, the press box, uh, and I don't know how many people, you know, know where the press box is or, or, or what, but the press box at new era field is kind of unique in that, you don't have to go through, you know, a tunnel or field level and take an elevator up to it. Right. Uh, it's literally right off the concourse. Yep. So it's, you know, a, a flight of stairs and you're right there. So it's, you know, we don't always get to go walk around the stadium. I've been to a bunch of stadiums without actually, you know, going into the concourse and going and seeing and feeling the stadium. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I had a friend, uh, I had a friend who was at the game. So I went to go, go meet them. Uh, in the concourse and I just took a lap while I was doing it and I mean it was just like my heart was pumping like I have no emotional interest in the outcome of this game and it still had my heart pumping just how how just thrilled everybody was to be there uh the energy everybody was giving off uh you know the the high fives the handshakes the questions the conversations that I, I was able to have with people throughout the stadium like, I think it's something, I think I'm going to do it every week, man. As long as, you know, it's not snowing, but uh, <laughs> it's something I'll probably do every week, weather permitting. And uh, it's just, you know, it, it, it's cool. It's different. And it got a lot of hype. And there are, I think, are very few things in life that actually live up to the hype. And, and this was one of them. I'll tell you, it has a small town feel. Buffalo, the game, especially the first game. I mean, the first game is always the most hyped. Now that I've lived in Florida for the past couple of years, there's many times where I miss living in Buffalo, but maybe more so than most holidays or events that go on. I always feel like the Buffalo Bills home opener is probably the day that I most miss not being in there because it's just a different atmosphere. So outside, you were at Pinto's tailgate. Did you get to see the catch-up thing and all that stuff? Or you probably had to be, you had to probably be indoors back getting ready to work by then. So you probably didn't get a chance to see that, did you? Yeah, I didn't get to see that. Um, I, I did hear, I did hear about it. Now that I, I, I'm able to kind of stop and piece everything together, um, I do remember somebody saying ketchup. And now that I see the videos, it's like, oh, okay, that's yeah. He told me I wouldn't be able to miss it, and if I had seen it, then yeah, I, I would know exactly what he's talking about. But uh, I actually, I went, uh, I went kind of, kind of incognito or as incognito as I could. I just threw on, you know, like a t-shirt, basketball shorts. Uh, I had a little, like a, a little almost selfie stick, a little mechanical selfie stick uh-huh. just to record some video. Because uh, I didn't want, like, I don't know, I didn't, I wanted to just experience it authentically. Like, I didn't want anybody going out of their way uh, to, to end up on, on the internet or something. And uh, I thought it was a, a more realistic experience. But uh, it, it was just, it, it was just, it's so it's kind of difficult to describe, which, you know, I, I literally write for a living. I'm not often lost for words, but, uh, it is just the energy and it was something different. There's like a different vibe in every little corner that, that you hit. It was almost like, uh, it's split into neighborhoods, man. And, 
I love to like, you know, keep doing that and keep engaging and keep learning about it and, uh, and be able to maybe split up that tailgate lot into what, you know, you could expect from each area. But it was, uh, it's a great time, man. It, it, it's almost bittersweet because uh, for as long as I'm covering the Buffalo Bills, I will probably never actually get to experience the tailgate like y'all do. Unless right. there's just a drastic change in ESPN policy, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. So it's maybe one day if, if I ever leave this beat, man. Maybe one day I uh, I can come back and uh, I can come back and and do it right. Well, I'll tell you, man. And because you cover the team, you get an opportunity to experience other things. I think unless you go to other stadiums, you really it's really hard to appreciate just how big a Buffalo Bills home game is to the fans. You know, living down here in Tampa now, I've been to a couple Buccaneers games, and I'm not trying to disrespect the city of Tampa or their fans, but it's just completely different. It's much more casual and low-key, whereas Buffalo, it feels, the hours leading up to the game, it kind of feels like life or death, the outcome of that game for all those fans. Now, what about inside the stadium, okay? It was crazy loud. You're in the press box covering the game. I've covered a lot of high school and some NFL games as well, in that press box. It's kind of soundproof, so you don't hear a lot, but you could feel the vibrations when it gets loud and crazy in there. Did you kind of feel that in the press box during the game? Yeah, it, and uh, I, I think I mentioned it on Twitter. It is, it's pretty soundproof, and yeah. uh, they do pump they do pump a little bit of stadium noise into it uh, through, through the speakers, so we kind of get a, a somewhat artificial feel for, mm-hmm. for how it sounds. But uh, like you said, you can't fake the feeling and you could feel the stadium shake. You could feel the vibration uh, when everybody's saying, hey, 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 like I can uh, I'm hearing it in my sleep, man. Like it's uh, it's pretty it's just exhilarating, man. It's exhilarating to to hear. Uh, You don't get those kind of chants. You don't get that kind of that kind of feel that that usually comes that kind of passion is is usually reserved for college or, or maybe even uh, high schools and, you know, in Texas, but uh, no, like they are the entire time. It was just like, you, I almost, you almost hope that man, please win this game so that you could be undefeated when new England comes to town next week. Cause I, I, I want, uh, I want to experience that. I want to hear this place just for, you know, just for science and research purposes just to say that I've done it and uh, I I really can't wait to see what the environment is like you know this is kind of off topic a little bit but because you said that this brings up a point that I've been on many times I know as a media person your job is to be objective and you're not rooting for the bills or a specific outcome of a game your job is covering a team your job's not rooting for the team but don't you have to admit that the bills winning is good for business you know when the bills are good people are going to read your stuff regardless but there's more of an enthusiasm. People are more likely to want to read stuff when the Bills or see videos or listen to radio shows or podcasts when the Bills are 3-0 and as opposed to if they were 0-3 and they got blown out three straight times like, say, the New York Jets have right now where no fans stop caring about that team. So don't you have an interest? Wouldn't you say you have at least some interest in the team being good? Not because you want them because you're a Buffalo Bills fan, but if nothing else, it's good for your product. It's good for your brand, your business. Do you agree with that? 
Well, you know, I've actually never experienced the Bills' loss, so I don't know what the fan base does after a loss. You're seven and zero, dude. We're seven and zero. I said that on Twitter last night. The Bills are seven and zero, including the preseason since Marcel started covering the team. Everyone out there listening, shoot, and this uh, and this week will be this will be my toughest test yet. Yeah, but um, but no, I I think that this is a it's a unique fan base in that uh, Buffalo, the Bills, that's that's the story like that that's that is what is happening in buffalo that is what this city cares about in new york you know the jets stop winning uh it's still baseball season or or you can start talking about the nets or the knicks or do the 700 million things there are to do in new york city and same goes in places like la or dallas or miami where you know if they're if your pro team starts starts losing you can fall back and, and just redirect your energy elsewhere. But here, win or lose, like the Bills are, the Bills are the heart of, of this city, and uh, I think that winning helps. I think winning only cranks that that notch up a couple ticks. But uh, even if they lose, from what I'm told and and what I've I've, I've heard in the past is this fan base still cares. Sure. So uh, winning is good for the business. Don't get me wrong. I think, uh, you know, you'd have to find only the most cynical writer who who doesn't selfishly say like, yeah, I I would like the team I'm covering. I would rather the team I'm covering win than lose because, you know, covering a winning team is a little more enjoyable than covering a losing team. Uh, Just unless you just, like I said, you kind of like to be cynical and you like to, to, to criticize. Yeah, but uh, but no. As far as a fan base and interest goes, I think this is a unique market in which, win or lose, uh, they're just going to eat the they're going to eat this content up. They're going to eat up any scrap of information they can get about the team. Whether it's you know, okay, we're winning, we can speculate on how far we can go, or we're losing. Let's see, like, what do we need to do to get better? Like, what is it the team needs to improve on? And and. Uh, I think I can appreciate that about a market like this. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail completely on the head when you said Buffalo kind of like is almost like a college atmosphere. I would even go so far, maybe even like, say, Texas high school football or Indiana basketball. The fans just care that much, which kind of brings me to the next point. Conversely, all right, so it's crazy before the game. You're seeing all this partying. The stadium's as loud as it could be. It's rocking. You could feel it in the press box. What about on the other end? How eerily quiet did it get after that horrible Josh Allen interception in the third quarter, and especially after Cincinnati went on and took the lead in the fourth quarter? You kind of, at least watching it on television, maybe it was different being in the stadium covering the game, but watching it on television 1,300 miles away kind of felt like the air went out of the stadium after that Josh Allen interception. Yeah, it did. And it, uh, I, I think I said it, that uh, it's like the buzz collectively wore off. Man. And, uh, and reality kind of started to set in. And I think there was a point where fans on opposite ends of the stadium probably could have had a conversation with one another. It was so quiet. Yeah. And uh, that's, I mean, that's typical, but, but the thing is in, in not to be, not to see the game through, through rose colored lenses, but uh, the thing that I think you can appreciate is even as that momentum started to shift backwards, there was just not an empty spot in that stadium. Every stadium you go to only like a completely full sellout is reserved for like the elite of elite, uh, you know, crowds. You very, maybe in New England, you see that um, in AT&T stadium with the Cowboys, you'll see that uh, probably the Eagles as well in Kansas city where there's just no blank spots. But usually when a team says, uh, Oh, it's, 
today's a sellout. They're counting season ticket holders too that maybe didn't show up. So you're seeing empty rows and empty sections. I don't remember seeing a single empty section in New Era Field yesterday. Yeah. And uh, like nobody was leaving early. Nobody filed out. Nobody bailed as far as I can tell. And uh, I, I think that, you know, as a team, I, I think these guys down there, they notice that more than you think. Uh, players notice a lot more things than I think they get credit for. And to know, wow, they, uh, even as we, you know, kind of started to piss the game away, uh, everybody was still full force out here. I think that you can feed off of that energy. And uh, I don't think it's just all, I don't think it's all grammar when, when they, they loop in the crowd and, and include the crowd and fans in, in their, their role in the result of the play of the game. I think they really mean it. And that's, it's just rare. Once again, I know it's like circling back to the theme of this conversation, but it's just rare at this level of the game to see that kind of passion. Last two things here. When I first interviewed you for the podcast a couple months ago, you were literally brand new to the area. Other than maybe a quick conversation, you really had an opportunity to get to know anybody. But now you've been covering the team through all training camp, all of preseason, three regular season games. You've gotten a chance to work alongside a lot of the Buffalo media. How's your experience been as you've gotten to know some of the people from the Buffalo sports media? Oh, I, I love it, man. I've loved it. And uh, everybody is, is helpful. Everybody's engaging. Everybody's knowledgeable. Uh, the conversations that we have back in that, in that press room are, uh, they're, they're thorough, man. And they're, they're, they're thorough, they're rewarding and engaging. And, uh, and it's, it's competitive in that, you know, everybody wants to, everybody wants to be first. Everybody wants to be the best, the, the most thorough. That's the business that we're in, but it's not cutthroat. It's not cutthroat to the point where, uh, you know, if, if one person's got to be at practice and another can, has time to go sit on a call, it's not so competitive that that person can't ask the one on the call. Hey, can you ask blah, blah, blah for me? Or, Hey, what did so-and-so say about this? Or, hey, did you talk to this guy in the locker room? Like, I don't, I haven't seen anybody, you know, actively withholding information from one another. And, uh, I think, uh, I think that that once again, that falls right back on the, on this fan base's, um, kind of insatiable hunger for information coming from this franchise that, you know, there's enough room, there's enough news, there's enough interest to go around. Like we can all, we can all write, we can all get, uh, you know, we can all generate the same amount of interest and, and everybody's going to keep reading no matter how many people pump these stories out. And uh, I think I could speak for all of us when we say that we appreciate that and, uh, you know, never change. All right. Last thing here, man. So you're out last Sunday. You get to experience all the craziness. Your first Bills home regular season game. That was for the Cincinnati Bengals, okay? The 0-2 Cincinnati Bengals coming up. How nuts do you anticipate it being in Orchard Park this Sunday when it's the 3-0 New England Patriots against the 3-0 Buffalo Bills, two undefeated teams playing each other? I'm 99.5% sure we're going to have Jim Nance and, and Tony Romo on the call. It's going to be very, very big. I'm sure you're very much looking forward to this Sunday, and you think it might sneak around a little bit before the game as well and kind of check out that vibe. Yeah, and I think, uh, I believe CBS... I don't remember where they're sending. They're sending Romo, unfortunately, to uh, 
to one of the afternoon games. But I feel like if this was later on in the season, this would be a flex candidate. Oh yeah, uh, I, I I think it's a it's a flex candidate type of game, and uh, I I I can't. It's hard to say. I I underestimate traffic and and the atmosphere around the stadium because I feel like every game it's just gotten like the traffic has gotten worse. Like, okay. The Colts game in, in the preseason, like, all right, yeah, I should leave a little earlier. And then uh, the Vikings game, it was a little bit worse. And then this one, it was a lot worse. And I feel like no matter how much earlier I leave my apartment downtown, that uh, it's never quite going to be early enough to get there when I need to get (laughs) there. So I might just mess around and get a hotel room in Orchard Park and uh, and walk over if I can, or or just sleep in my car in the parking lot. But uh, no, I think uh, I, I think I definitely will have to get there early enough to take another lap through uh, through the Hammers lot, through maybe expand a little bit. Uh, shoot, feel free, shoot me some suggestions, people. Anybody listening to this, and uh, I think uh, you know I might I alluded to it on Twitter. I might not be alone. Uh, I might have some people with some cameras with me. Maybe, maybe not. At the very least, I think I can get my own footage. But, uh, you know, these things are still in the works. I just, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big game. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if I don't make these decisions, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we sent some sort of camera crew to, to document that energy. Because it's, uh, you know, this could be, I don't want to over- speculate too much. I haven't watched any new England film. We haven't talked to anybody. I haven't started that. That pregame work starts today. Right. But uh, I mean, this is a, a trajectory changing, potentially trajectory changing game uh, for the bills uh, during this home stretch. They're going to need to win. I think they need to win one of the, of their underdog games, uh, whether it's Patriots in week four or it's uh, the Eagles in, I believe week, uh, week eight. But uh, you got to win one of those games that you're quote unquote not supposed to, if you want to really cement yourself as a as a playoff contender. And uh, what better time to do it than you know five home games in a six in six weeks? Yeah. So this is a this is a it's a big game tomorrow. Uh, it's also going to be a big game every week. They'll say it's a big game, but Patriots Eagles these these have a little more. You got a little more juice to them. Yeah, no doubt about it. Good stuff. All right. If you're not doing so already, go follow Marcel on Twitter at Marcel underscore LJ. Of course, check out his fine work over at ESPN.com as well. Thanks a lot for your time, Marcel. I know that this is a very busy time for you and a very big week coming up. So really appreciate your time this week. Thanks, buddy. Hey, always a pleasure, Pat. And uh, have a good one. Uh, Looking forward to seeing you up here, man. Uh, Don't come up here on this wing, these wing tours for a month again and not even hit me up. That's, uh, <laughs> We're definitely, we'll get some wins. <laughs> Hi, my name is Matt Cundell, and this portion of the Moranolytics podcast is powered by my company, mattcundellvoice.com. If you need a voice for your company videos, narration, e-learning, maybe it's your radio or TV ad, or even your phone system, consider using my voice to tell your story. I'm not only a sponsor of this podcast, I'm also a regular listener, wrestling fan, and longtime supporter of the Buffalo Bills. For more, check out mattcundlevoice.com or click on the link in the show notes. Pat with Pucks. Are you a big man? Pop! I'm talking to you! What? You wake up in the morning, you say, I put on my big boy pants! Look, I'm wearing a belt! 
I got big boy pants on. <laughs> oh my God, that is funny. Okay, do not worry. All of your questions are about to be answered. Cell phones and pagers off, please. All right, I'm now joined by Tone Pucks, another Pat with Pucks. Before we talk Bills and Sabres, obviously, we're going to do plenty of that. I'm going to get this right out of the way, because if I don't, I know you sure as hell are going to talk about it. Congratulations in order to you. Tenth year of our fantasy baseball league. You are the champion again. I hate to admit it, but you did it. And I will, listen, I'm actually going to give you a little bit of props here, too. As much as I want to hate on you and I enjoy hating on you, you kind of deserved it. You did have the best team. You were in first place for most of the season and uh, relatively impressive championship week, too. It's not like you fell into it because your opponent had a shit week. You went on and you took it, man. So grudgingly, I got to give it up to you, man. Congrats. I'm stupid. You're smart. I was wrong. You were right. You're the best. I'm the worst. Uh, you're very good looking. I'm not attractive. All right. As long as you're willing to admit that. Yeah, I, I don't like that at all. I I much <laughs> rather you be pissed about it while I talk smack and and I feel like I want I want to retape this whole thing. I don't know how to respond to your your kindnesses right now. I don't like it one bit. But yes, I am awesome. I, I did uh, dominate this year. The moves, <laughs> the moves in the semifinal when I was down like ten categories to one midweek. The fantasy pundits will be talking about those moves for a long time. Primarily uh, Miguel Sano, an incredible ad uh, midweek of a semifinal. Yeah, well, you know, I, I mean, I'll, I will probably be talking about it for the weeks to come when there's no more, you know, things uh, pressing like Bills and Sabres to talk about. So, you know, I could go I could go light on it today and just accept my well-deserved congratulations. And uh, no, I'd rather get it over with. I'd rather get it all out right now because I won't be giving, you, I ain't giving you any props after today. You are right, though. In the semis, though, you did come back. I thought you were buried and you did come back. And this weekend, again, in the championship week, I don't I don't want to say it was never in doubt because you never know. There were a lot of categories that got tight into the weekend. And then you kind of pulled away. But I'm looking up the numbers now and impressive. Even one of the categories you lost was steals and you had seven steals. I mean, that you don't lose very often when you have seven steals. You won for people who were we play Yahoo and it's eleven points up for grabs. You won seven to four. I'm looking at your Ross. Like I said, you were in first place most of the season. I'm gonna give you some props and uh even a couple of Good moves you made the draft. You drafted Cody Ballinger in the fifth round. I got to give you props for that. He ended up. I can't second. even. All right, just real quick though. All right, I can't even accept uh, props on Bellinger though. Like Bellinger was not a guy on my radar. It just got to like the fourth round, and I was like, fifth all right, round. let's just fifth round. I was like, let's just see if it was a sophomore slump. I can't even like I, uh, you know, he wasn't a guy that I looked at and and saw the potential to even do what he was, what he did this year. I was just banking on, on something closer to, you know, to, to his rookie year. I got lucky with, uh, with Bellinger. He just became a value pick and, and I got kind of lucky with that one, but yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, well, there's one of the big ones. So hold on. I got this. This is what changed it all. Okay. Vladdy came up and George had an, had an abundance of third baseman and he, decided, all right, because there's so much hype around Vladdy, especially with us being in Buffalo and, you know, being close to the Toronto market and all those things. He decided that Alex Bregman 
was the more tradable asset or, you know, like he just he he didn't want to be the guy who traded Vlad Guerrero Jr. And he ended up being the guy who traded who arguably could be the AL MVP. That's probably what was the biggest move of the year for me. Yeah, I think a couple of keys of winning the championship, obviously drafting well is the most important thing. Being able to win a trade or two is another big thing. And you definitely did that. You just described it with Bregman. And then maybe not panicking. That's another thing, too. A lot of guys draft players and they get rid of them too quick, so to speak. When it comes to Bellinger, by the way, I got to say this because I don't know why I remember this so well, but I do. I think a reason why he fell to fifth in the fifth round of our league, and I'm sure he slipped in most leagues, too, was because he was one of, if not the leading guy on pretty much every fantasy Baseball expert, so to speak. Every article that I read, bus list. A guy to fade. A guy who was not. A guy who was supposed to regress this year. You just said it. He lasted all the way to the fifth round. So I'll give you props for that. You also got Moncada in the tenth round. I'm looking at that now. And then probably this move might. I don't know if this move won you the championship, but you always get a guy, a free agent who no one else has. And this year you got Jordan Alvarez. Ah, oh, he was huge. Yeah, really. He was huge. Big time, big time, man. And then a couple pitchers, too, who really didn't pitch that good for you this year as a whole. Again, this is why I said not panicking, not getting rid of these guys when you get pissed off because you you're a hothead just like I am. A guy goes out, gets bombed two, three times. No matter who he is, you're ready to cut his ass or get rid of him. Hugh Darvish was huge for you, especially in the championship. We get 25 strikeouts in two games. And then Robbie Ray, too, another one who did not pitch very well this season, but he had 17 Ks for you in, in two games in the championship, too. So, yeah, man, whatever. It, nah, makes me sick, it makes me sick to give these props to you, but you did deserve it. Again, somebody, you win, you're in first place almost the entire season. It wasn't quite wire to wire, but you were right in the hunt for first place overall all season, and then you won the championship, so whatever. Hey, look, real quick on, on, you know, the hothead moves, though, I have to own this one. All right. In another pool, I dropped John Flaherty after his first half of the season, and he's had a historically fantastic second half. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch him pitch, but holy cow, man, if, if you know, if St. Louis, which I, I'm pretty sure they're a lock if they haven't clinched it, make sure, sit down and watch him deal for you know, seven or eight innings in the postseason because your man is fantastic. His second half, I watched him against the Cubs the other night, a game that they that Carlos Martinez almost blew for him. But John Flaherty's going to – he could be a first-rounder next year. He was so good in the second half. It was sick. And I and I gave him – I gave him away. I gave him away because of his first half. So The Yankees in Houston are probably on a collision course. Who are you liking right now? I, obviously, Houston's the favorite because of their pitchers, but do you think the Yankees got a realistic chance right now to beat Houston in the playoffs? I'm sure we'll talk about that more before it ultimately, hopefully, ends up happening anyway. But right now, your thought. Do they think? Do you think that the Yankees have a realistic shot at beating Houston? No. Really? Yeah, really. I mean, I just... I. I I don't even understand how the Yankees had the season that they had, other than the fact that the AL East was down. Toronto and Baltimore were were absolute garbage. I guess when I say the AL East was down, I'm I'm talking mainly about Boston because you know, Tampa Tampa's been a tough uh, been a tough out all season. But no, I just I don't understand how the Yankees are doing it. You know, the the marquee names have been on the shelf. The pitching, nothing to write home about. I hate that team. I don't like that team at all. I, I don't want to watch that team for any more than, you know, three games, if at all possible. 
<laughs> I'm telling you, I don't like them. All right, fair enough. And we'll talk baseball in a feature, Pat Whitlock. So I want to get to the Bills. Obviously, it's been long enough now. Three and zero, a weird game, so to speak. I don't, you know, I don't know what to make of it because it's um, everyone. I think everyone expected the Bills to win. I think smart people expected the game to not be a blowout, and it didn't end up being a blowout. Although it should have been a blowout. The game itself, for me, man, it was just like a, a big gamut of emotions. It felt, again, early on, it was going to be a rout. I was a little concerned at halftime when we're only up 14 points. It felt like we should have been a lot more than that. Josh Allen makes one of the worst mistakes I've ever seen an NFL quarterback make and allows a team back into a game. And then at the end, it turns into one of those legitimate, uh, hard-to-breathe nail-biters, man. What were your emotions going through that game? Was this kind of what you expected? I'm not saying, you know, the the interception that Allen threw, which we'll talk about that in a second. I don't think anyone actually expected to see that per se. But did you expect this to come down in the last five minutes of the fourth quarter coming in? No, I thought uh, we were going to win that game by two scores. Uh, Even when, you know, we left a lot of points on the table in the first half, uh, I felt like 14 nothing, you know, was all that we were going to need. Not that that 14 points necessarily was going to be enough, but that the two score lead at that point in the game was going to be enough. I never saw Cincinnati coming back and taking a lead. I was, I mean, I was just livid over it, you know, and not that yell at the, uh, yell at the television type livid, just, just kind of stewing in it, man. Just, just sitting there watching it, absolutely stewing in it so much so that even the win wasn't enough to, you know, to overcome how pissed I was by the way that they gave that, you know, that lead up. Like I came upstairs, I went to the bunker, you know, for, for the second half and I came upstairs and, you know, I just, I had a chip on my shoulder and, you know, O'Sherry just couldn't understand what, what that was all about coming off of a win, but I was pissed, man. I mean, that's just, you know, I don't want to hear anything about, you know, how close, you know, the margins are in, in between NFL teams and all this shit. That game should have been over. And, and, and I don't want to hear how, you know, good teams find ways to win games where they're not on their game and stuff like that. It's just I'm not in that place today. I'm not in that place today. Today I'm in a place where I'm like, if I were the coach, I, I wouldn't be coming up after the game talking, you know, hey, that was a lot of heart, man. That's a lot of heart. You know I mean? Good on McDermott. He likes the positive spin. But I'm that guy that comes up and and says, you know, we got lucky to win that football game. I'm glad that we found the, uh, you know, the formula for one final drive. But you're not going to win many football games, you know, that you that you don't put a team away in and that you make the sort of mistakes that we made. And that would be my approach towards coaching them up this week. I'm I'm I was pissed. You know, like I just I was too mad about that second half to find as much. Uh, you know, enjoyment in the uh, in the three and zero start as others seem to have. Well, before we get to that interception, which obviously turned that game around, let me ask you this because it's something that I'm wondering about myself, and I don't know that I have the answer either. They were up fourteen nothing at the half, and we both felt like it should have been more than that. At least I know that I did. We both agreed that obviously the interception turned the game, but why weren't the Bills up by more than fourteen before that interception happened? I, it's hard to put that on Josh Allen because to that point, I'm looking at the numbers right now. He was 18 of 27 for 180 yards and a touchdown with 22 yards rushing in the first half. He had a very good first half. At least I think he had a very good first half. Maybe you don't. 
But why were the Bills only up 14 nothing before that interception midway through the third quarter? Well, uh, you know, a, a non-well-thought-out answer here, and over, possibly an oversimplified one, is T.J. Yeldon's fumble. <laughs> Yeldon, yeah. Yeldon put one on the ground at the 10-yard line. Sure. You know what I mean? That's another three that makes it 17, or perhaps another seven that makes it 21. So yeah, there were some there were some drives that that stalled maybe via penalty and uh, you know things like that. But you know one drive in particular that was going extremely well was one that ended in, in a turnover by uh, you know by a running back that seemed to be a, a significant downgrade from the injured one uh, Devin Singletary that uh, that couldn't go. So that's that to me, but that's not being talked about enough when we talk about you know, why, why the lead wasn't bigger, you know, they, they, they coughed up a ball, uh, on a, on a relatively harmless play. I mean, it was a strip. Sure. But you know, two hands on the rock, man. Yeah. And I'll tell you this. I think the only reason why TJ Eldon saw the field again was because Singletary was hurt and they only had two running backs. You could tell that they didn't trust him. Like Gore played an awful lot of snaps after that. Football. Yeah. And it's again, only because Gore can't play every down. I think that's the only reason, reason why, uh, Yeldon even saw the field. All right, so let's get to that interception. So it's 14 nothing at the time. They're up comfortably. And he got it. He played it with fire earlier. I think he had an intentional grounding in the first half, something similar, where instead of just taking the sack, he threw the ball out of bounds, which, of course, intentional grounding is far better than a turnover. But it was still a big mistake. Sometimes, you know, take the sack or live to fight another day. And we kind of have been talking about this, whether it's you and I or me and other people on this podcast about him living the fight another day and cutting down on the game-changing mistakes, that that's what prevents him from taking that next step in a progression towards becoming a really consistently good quarterback in this league. And then he just reverted to something. I, I couldn't believe it as it happened. He runs out of the pocket to the right again. He's held up, and he throws the ball towards the middle of the field, and it gets picked off. I can't remember one play. Maybe you can, but I highly doubt it because, again, we're not... I didn't pre-tell you what we're going to be talking about. We're kind of just going with the flow here. I can't remember the last time one single play turned the game more than that one did. Would you agree with that? I It was just, man, what a game-changing play. Everything changed at that moment. And I'm not just talking about the score of the game going from 14-0 to 14-7, then eventually losing the lead. I'm talking about literally the air out of the stadium felt like it was leaving. I watching it on television. The crowd was so much more quiet. It was like, it was like people were just dumbfounded that Josh Allen can make such a big, stupid mistake like he did. Well, let's try to remember that this ex- isn't exactly a franchise that has played with comfortable leads through the years. All right. So we yeah. haven't really been in a whole lot of positions to, you know, to see a, a boneheaded play uh, change the, you know, the course of a game. So, I, you know, look, I, I've seen other quarterbacks make that terrible of a decision. All right. I believe that there were probably you know, another couple of, of quarterbacks who did it. If we, you know, paid attention to every single highlight from, from yesterday. Yeah. I hope, uh, the record, know, I see it with Jameis Winston because I live down there in Tampa and I, I mean, end up watching a lot of Bucks games. I see that with him six, seven times a year. But, but this is, this is an interesting way to put it uh, and debate to potentially have. If he doesn't have the intentional grounding early in the game. All right. Does he make that play? Like, is it the fact that the, you know, the last bad thing that stuck in his head 
as he was put in almost a, an exact same scenario of, of, you know, trying to evade the single, uh, you know, free rusher. Yeah. Um, the last bad thing that, that is in his mind was the intentional grounding that, you know, that totally stalled the drive. So he didn't want to make that mistake. And instead he ended up making a bigger mistake. Do you think so, he gets overconfident? Cause he gets away with some stuff. I remember the one play, he made one throw to Dawson Knox. I think that he avoided a sack and didn't do the ball across his body once in Knox. Another time he fumbled a snap and it was like, this guy's getting sacked. They ended up completing a pass. It might've been to Sweeney. I don't remember who it was. It was only for a couple of yards, but it was one of those plays like, oh my God, there's not a lot of people who can make that play, but he does. Do you think sometimes his overconfidence hurts him and a result ends up being an interception like that? That should never happen? For sure. I mean, yeah, I think that one, that's a no brainer, but yeah, to me, I I liken it to a golf swing with, with him. You know, there's so many things to correct uh, or that could go wrong. You know, that sometimes when you fix one thing, you know, you get you, you got to put a plug in the dam somewhere else. And I think what he saw yesterday and hopefully he he learns from is not just the obvious mistake that he made in the interception. OK, but that sometimes, you know, there's good mistakes and then there's like terrible mistakes. The good mistake being the intentional grounding and then, you know, the bad mistake being the pick. And you pick the, you know, you pick the lesser of two evils. If you have to, uh, you know, get stuck with another uh, intentional grounding there or even the sack. You know, I mean, that's the one thing that he's not taking right now. He's not taking the sack on, yeah. on those. He refuses to be beat by a single lineman who comes free. And hey, look man, there've been a lot of plays, a lot of wow plays that have be, that have been a product of that this year. Like, you know, the one to, to Knox last week where he, you know, he beat the guy off the edge and and threw the dime on the crossing pattern to Knox. Yeah. Um but sometimes there there are uh, you know, linemen in this league ends in particular that can contain him in in open space. And he's just going to he's going to have to learn to, uh, you know, to to eat those. By the way, sidebar, whoever says that the word momentum is overrated when it comes to sports didn't watch this game because they wouldn't be saying that that play changed the momentum and the momentum clearly changed the game right after that. Listen, when it comes to Josh Allen, I know the popular thing. Uh, and to be fair, I to myself, I've been saying this for quite a while now. He reminds me of Brett Favre a lot. And I'm not talking about the accomplishments. I'm not talking about the skill level. It's just that the dude's never boring. That's how Brett Favre played. You know what I mean? He made some of the biggest head-scratching mistakes that a quarterback can make, but he would also make some of the best plays that any quarterback can make. I don't know. I mean, hopefully with some coaching and experience, he won't have that type of interception anymore. But I don't see him being contained and calm down. You know, a lot during, the, during preseason, he was just dumping the ball a lot of check downs. I remember even during one podcast, I was like, "Is this, are they trying to coach him to be another Trent Edwards? That's definitely not going to be the case with this guy, man. He makes shit happen for better or for worse out there. He's You got to say this much. If nothing else, he's never boring. No, he's he's not that. My, my biggest you know takeaway, though, from yesterday from the uh, interception is how he followed it up. And I think you and I had a little bit of a, uh, you know, disagreement on on that. You know, you saw him follow it up with a poised final drive to uh, to get his team to win. And, you know, I, I'm I'm OK with that. 
because he did a lot of it with his feet. So I'm okay with that narrative. But I saw a guy coming off that interception that was simply afraid to come off of his first read. All right. I saw a guy who 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 became paralyzed by his fear of another turnover uh, after that interception. And that is something that that will really hold him back, you know, because if he makes a mistake like that, you know, in the first quarter or something like that, he's going to, you know, he's going to have to get over that as the game progresses. And yesterday, I just I, I feel like he didn't get over it all. I feel like he he stayed very locked on his uh, on his initial read. And quite frankly, and, you know, we'll get to this more as we hand out uh, accolades later on. Uh, if he doesn't get a play that involved a great design and a lot of yards after catch, I don't know that he gets us down the field the way that he his the, the level that his confidence was at uh, on that winning drive. I don't think it was I don't think it was good. I think I think we got a lot a little bit lucky and a uh, very unlikely player made an enormous play for him. Yeah, well, I, I think we could both be right on this. He was rattled after the. After the turnover, the next two drives, they were both punts. And I do agree with you. I remember a couple plays, maybe it was to Beasley. He was locked on him completely the whole time. I'm not going to say he wasn't rattled at all, but I do think he's developing the maturity to know when it's winning time. I've said on this before that in some ways he kind of, maybe it was a Jets game. It was a Jets game where he reminded me a lot of how a lot of the Jim Kelly games that we would used to sit through when me and you were growing up where, you know, Jim would light up the NFL, but there were plenty of games where Kelly kind of stunk it up for two, three quarters, and then he would turn it up during winning time. And I kind of feel like that's what happened again on Sunday. You look at that final drive, and I do agree with you about Knox. I mean, the play was mostly Knox. Well, first down, he had uh, Beasley with the nice little pass for seven yards. Then it was on second down, that big play to Dawson Knox. It went for 49 yards. He basically ran two people over. Once they got there, though, this is where... I don't know. I consider Josh Allen, his legs is a major weapon and that's part of his game. I don't think it's just a little supplement to his game. I think it's a major part of his game. He ran for six yards. Then on the next play, he ran for eight yards and that got them down to the 16. In fact, that run for eight yards, it was on second and four. He should have been sacked. And this is where you said he refuses to take a sack. He only got sacked once. It felt like he should have been sacked seven or eight times on Sunday. It was a lot of pressure and he escaped a lot. But anyway, he had two nice runs and then, uh, Yeldon ran up the middle. He got nothing. And then Allen ran again for seven yards and then Gore punched in for one. And that was the game. He didn't do it with his arm. I do agree with that's what I'm saying. I think we're both right. I do think he was starting to lock in on one receiver. He might've been a little rattled after that game, but his physical ability with his legs kind of is, is what got the job done. And I think the biggest reason why the bills won that game yesterday. I'm totally good with that. I, I I'm, I'm good with both being right, uh, on that. My, um, you know, my interest now falls to, you know, does he, does he put it in the rear view going into this Sunday? You know, I, I, I like to think that he will, but I just, man, I don't like, I don't, I don't like watching a guy play quarterback scared. And, and, and that just, I had a really, really bad feeling about his, uh, uh, about his second half that uh, I, I hope he can dispel relatively early in the game, um, you know, this coming Sunday. But yes, man, he relied on God-given talent, all right, to, you know, to get the job done. And if if that's what it's going to take, you know, on a day where either his confidence is off or his accuracy is off or whatever, all right, then 
good by it because yeah, man, you know, his legs were a big part of that final drive. I lo- I see. I think the opposite. I think that the second half playing bad and still getting the win. I don't think that leaves a lingering effect on him in a negative way. I think it's actually going to give him a, a lot more confidence. We hit on Dawson Knox, by the way. Let's move on from Josh. A legitimate young conundrum to me right now. He dropped a pass earlier in the game. He had a false start, and he's been doing that a couple times this year. He's had a couple drops and a couple dumb penalties, but he did have three catches for 67 yards, including that big 49-yarder that would set up the game winner. Running dudes over, not just that catch. He had another catch where he ran that safety number 22 over earlier in the game. Guy on TV, I don't remember, maybe it was Feely who said it. I can't remember for sure, but he reminded him a little bit of Jeremy Shockey, and I kind of agree with that assessment. What are you thinking of Dawson Knox right now? I really like this kid a lot. He's definitely raw, and again, we're seeing some of the bad that comes with him too, but I'm thinking the Bills might have got themselves a gem with, with this guy. He really he impresses me. Yeah, I mean... My feelings on Dawson Knox, all right, ends up bringing me back to my feelings on Brandon Bean. (laughs) I just think the dude has drafted fabulously. Yes, Dawson Knox looks like he's going to be a very good football player. We have seen him, you know, in back-to-back weeks, we've seen him make a spectacular block uh, on a on a touchdown um, on a touchdown run, yes. we've seen him make a you know spectacular run after catch on what you know may well have been the play of the game uh, at least to the good. And how about taking a little jet sweep nine or ten yards uh, as well with with some pretty good speed and and finish. The dude looks like a straight baller, and that's why you go out and you you know, you build yourself a good, uh, you know, scouting team and, and and administration so that you can uncover a former quarterback playing, you know, tight end who ne- never even caught a touchdown pass, you know, in college football. I'm excited about the kid and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with Tyler Croft. But, you know, the, the way the young tight ends have played this year makes, you know, Croft's recurring injury issues, almost a non-factor besides just, you know, feeling bad for the dude. Uh, other than that, man, you know, the, the team seems just fine, you know, not only right now, but maybe even poised to be very good at the position, you know, down the road as he just gets better and better. Yeah, I'm going to be very interested to see how things play out with Tyler Croft when and if he starts to get healthy. What about the offensive coordinator here, Brian DeBall? I, I thought he called a really good game, especially early on. But then at times I feel like he gets too cute. Now, Joe Biscali from The Athletic, his seven observations column, he wrote that he thinks he's doing an outstanding job with the play calls and the game plans, which for the most part, I completely agree with. But at times I feel like he's getting a little too cute. Like case in point, that third and one reverse to Isaiah McKenzie, that kind of pissed me off. You got Frank Gore out there. He's running the ball well. He's running it effectively. That's why you go out and you get a Frank Gore he should have gotten the ball a lot more than just 14 times the way he was running on Sunday. I have a problem with that. So overall, I think he's doing a good job, but I think he's overthinking it sometimes. And granted, you know, a play like that reverse, had it worked, we'd be sitting here and I'd be singing his praises. What an awesome call. He caught the Bengals off guard on third and one. They probably would stack the box, this and that. So I get it. It's easy to be a Monday morning armchair quarterback. All in all, though, I do like the job he's doing. Just, I think he's overthinking it at times. What do you feel right now? How, what are your thoughts right now on the job he's doing with these play calls and the game plans? 
I think he's I think he's been very, very good. And now I was critical of him a little bit in the way that they started out the Jets game because I felt like the run should have been mixed in, you know, because despite the 17 passes that started that game, it ended up equating to zero points. So I had an issue there. I had an issue at times yesterday, but just, you know, the the way he tries to keep teams off balance with uh, with the threat of the of the sweep, running it to a tight end, not only running it to McKenzie, but running it to Knox as well. Always having to fear, you know, that guy, uh, you know, coming in motion, getting the ball. That's that's a lot of fun to watch, uh, you know, an offensive coordinator um, for, for our team, you know, play. And, you know, the way he runs his quarterback, not in, uh, you know, a lot of people would probably say that it might be too much or they wouldn't, you know, they, they don't want to expose him to the hits, you know, but he usually has some linemen out in front of him. Uh, and it's usually only intended to, you know, to be like about a four to seven yard pickup where he's not going to get like lit up like a, like a, uh, like an option play. You know what I mean? Where he could, you know, like an option play could really put the quarterback out there. You know, he could get absolutely blown up, but you know, one that, that gets his lineman out in front of him on the edge towards the sideline, stuff like that. They seem to be calculated runs with him. And that's a fun component as well. And I think that's what yesterday's reverse was meant to be. Like it was, it was like over trichanery. I think it was meant to look like the Allen sweep. Cause you remember the linemen, all right, peeled left with, with Allen, like one of those, you know, quarterback runs off the edge. And then, and then he gets it to, you know, McKenzie flips it to McKenzie coming right. And just the, you know, the back, the backside pursuit uh, just hadn't pursued Allen enough yet to where they were, you know, over pursued to, uh, you know, to get McKenzie. So it was a funky little design. Like it, at first I looked at it and I was like, that play just looked stupid. And, and my cousin, I got a text too that, that said the same thing, but I thought about it afterwards and I realized what they were trying to do. They were trying to make it look like the Allen run. And then they, they, it morphed into you know, into the McKenzie reverse. It just, it just had too much going on. It just had too much going on, you know, with, with not enough space in, in, in which to operate. But, you know, that, that, that aside, man, the dude has been just calling good freaking uh, offensive uh, football games. And I think he's a big, big reason why Josh Allen has not been the flop that everybody thought that he was going to be. I think he's a big, big part of that. Speaking of being a big part of the Bills' success, we got to hit on the defense, of course. They completely and utterly dominated Cincinnati in the first half. Didn't allow a first down until the two-minute warning. In total, only one first down allowed in the first half. Uh, 0 for 5 Cincinnati was on third downs. They only ran 19 plays. Uh, The Bills only surrendered 77 yards of offense in the first half, and Cincinnati only possessed the ball for seven minutes and one second. So completely... Dominant first half for the Bills defensively. Second half, obviously, a little bit of a different story. And it seemed like it all began with the Josh Allen pick. Cincinnati scored a touchdown right after that. It only went 22 yards, three plays. I really don't put any of that on the defense. But I do think they were a little bit shell-shocked for a while after that. The Bills got the ball back. They punted. Cincinnati had their best drive of the day. It was the Bills' worst defensive stand of the day. The Bengals went 82 yards over 11 plays. Mixon scored on a one-yard pass from Manny Dalton. They had a tight game with about 12 and a half left. And then 
Cincinnati won 50 yards over over nine plays on the next drive that ended in a field goal, and they took a 17-14 lead. Like I said, a tale of two halves. Obviously, the Bills' defense made their big stand at the end of the game when they needed to. Trey Davis White got his second pick of the day. But how much of that do you put on that one pick by Josh Allen meaning that much? And how much of that was just on the defense just not continuously being able to play good for a full four quarters? Well, I, I mean, I'll take you back to when we chatted after the Jets game and I talk about, you know, the the, the team element to, you know, the ebbs and flows of, of a game. And I feel like it was, you know, what happened to the defense on the, uh, you know, following the Allen interception was almost identical to the way that they responded to uh, the Gore safety against the Jets. They ended up on the field, you know, on two consecutive drives, pretty, uh, you know, pretty close together. Mm-hmm. They they were a little shell shocked, uh, you know, as a team from the, you know, the the Gore safety against the Jets and the Allen pick, you know, yesterday. Yeah, and they didn't dig their offense out, man, because they, they just, I don't know if they weren't ready to do so or just, you know, the 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 huge shift in the uh, in the scenario, you know, of putting your helmet and getting back out there. Um, they may not have been prepared for or, you know, maybe there's a psychological element to it. Maybe there's a preparedness element to it. Or maybe it's just kind of the way the chips fell. But it felt a lot like the drive coming off the Gore safety uh, in week one since he did the tie it. And I think it's something that they just need to guard against. Okay, you know, our offense or our special teams or whatever has has put us in in a disadvantageous position. But we've been here before. We've got to tighten up because those those drives – you know, could have, you know, it could have sealed the Jets game and, and it could have put a, a put a nail in yesterday's too. I think even though Cincinnati, for the most part, is kind of a lousy team, I think they got good offense. Andy Dalton's a decent quarterback. He's been around. They got good weapons, even without A.J. Green. So you can't, I can't expect the Bills to come out every single week and shut down an offense for four quarters. I really do think that if, if I think if Josh Allen doesn't throw that interception, that the defense doesn't give up. Maybe maybe they give up 10 points for the entire game, which, to be fair to the defense here, they pretty much did give up 10 points. That first drive it was only a 22-yard drive. I put that entirely on Allen, and then they gave up 10 points after that. But again, you know you got an elite defense when you're kind of nitpicking small little things that they give up. And good for Trey White, by the way, two interceptions. It's been a while coming for him, and, you know, he, some people consider him one of the game's better quarterbacks. And at some point, you got to have interceptions to back that up. So good on all right, him. Look, let me t- yeah, good on him. Let me tell you, though, man, all right? Uh, there were a couple plays yesterday before the picks where I was ready to tweet out, you know, the old overrated uh, tag on, on him. I was – I'm sorry. I just – we will see he this didn't coming play good. He Sunday. didn't play good against the Giants. He had a lot of pa- – I mean, they were in front I mean, of him. I mean, look, but, man. Yeah. You know, Ross put a double move on him that should have been a six. Should have been six. Yeah, I agree. Okay, <laughs> all right. So I'm glad that he got the picks. I, I like Trey White. I don't think that he's underrated or you know like like being left off of certain lists and stuff like that is some sort of show of disrespect. I think the league has him about right. And you know what he needs to do? He needs to be part of a secondary that goes out there and shuts down number 12 on Sunday. Or maybe not shuts him down, but, you know, that's where you're going to, you know, 
to make your bones, man. That's all. When all eyes are on you next week, you're not going against, you know, John Ross or, or Sterling Shepard or whoever the Jets threw at him. You know, let's see what you got uh, in in uh, in six or five days or whenever the hell you're putting this uh, podcast up. <laughs> yeah, he'll be seeing a lot. Seriously, though, man. I mean, it's it's we're going to find out a lot about that defense against Tom Brady. We're going to find out a lot on on Sunday. And if you ain't as fired up for this one as just about any over the drought, well, I, I, there's, there's nothing to really say to that. Who is it? Everybody's fired up. For what's about for what's about to come in this and this week ahead, and I'm I love the matchups just as much as as the scenario that we're in. Yes, super cool. Both teams three and zero, but I I am ready to see this defense uh, uh, essentially uh, a, a finished product of Sean McDermott's three year plan to build a to build a a defense that can stop Tom Brady, and that defense has uh, has arrived. <laughs> that defense you know, has been built and has arrived. He probably wants one more pass rusher, uh, you know, to, to, to really put a bow on, uh, on this D, but it's arrived enough to where, you know, we're going to see exactly what he planned for over the course of these three years, you know, in drafts and free agency and stuff like that, you know, to, uh, to quiet number 12, man. And it's, it's it's right in front of our face now. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's all I'm going to be thinking about all week. It's New England weekend. I can't wait for it to happen. So let's wrap up Bill's stuff with our game awards. Usually I have MVP, LVP, but I'm actually kind of switching it. All right, instead of MVP, we're going to have game balls. We can give a limit of up to three. We're cheap. So no more than three game balls for players. We want to give game ball to conversely. Instead of an LVP, we're going to have game checks. You're the owner of this team. You don't like the way this guy played. You reserve the right up to three people to take their game checks. Have the unsung hero play the game, stuff like that. Let's start off with game balls. Again, limit of three. Who you got? I think I, well, I'm, I'm going to start with Dawson Knox. All right. I think, I think what he did, uh, you know, I mean, we talked about the play, but I think what he did was, was very deserving of, of probably MVP, you know, the, the way we used to do things like a whole week ago. <laughs> And then I'm going to, you know, this, this one is kind of weird because he ended up like missing a good chunk of the game, but I think we found out just how valuable John Feliciano is to the Bills. Okay. So I'm going to give John Feliciano a get well soon game ball because I, when he went out yesterday, I mean, hell it may have put the bills in their best case scenario by having to kick Ford inside because he was just getting roasted on the edge. But yeah, like like Feliciano, I think, is an important part of this team. So we're going to go with Dawson Knox and a uh, and a get-well-soon game ball uh, to John Feliciano. And, and I think we're just, you know, we're not overly impressed with yesterday's victory. So uh, so my cheap ass is just going to go with, just going to buy two game balls this week. All right, well, I got three, man. Trey White's got to get one because he had two picks. Micah Hyde, I loved his game. He had a nice force fumble in the first half. And he also, I'm sure you saw it, when Kevin Johnson was lined up in the third quarter on the wrong side, he's the one who pointed him out, got him on the right side, and Johnson ended up getting a sack on that play. I thought Micah Hyde was absolutely outstanding. And then I'm going to give Frank Gore the game, my third game ball. He had 76 yards on only 14 carries, average over five yards a carry. Guy's just a beast, man. He's not going to hit a home run. He's not going to run for... 
He's not going to hit that 75-yard Christian McCaffrey run. I, we know that at this stage of his career. But he's just solid and reliable. And I just had this sense of comfort when he's out there. We talked about this last week. I know he's not going to fumble when they had the lead. You know what I mean? He's going uh, to give you an honest effort every play. He's going to get every yard that he can. So anyway, I especially with Singletary out, I thought he played very well. So those are my three game balls. What about game checks? Instead of LVP, we're going to say game checks. Again, limit of three based on either mistakes they made or how they played. You, you're the owner of this team. You want their game check back. Oh, I like that. Just back, just on the Frank Gore thing. All right. That's a, how about that signing? Okay. Everybody was laughing at him. How about that signing by the executive of the, by the executive of the year? Okay. How about that signing by the NFL executive of the year? Uh, That's how he's going to now be known, by the way. All right. NFL, NFL executive of the year, Brandon Bean. And he did sign him on day one. He signed him on day one of free agency. So it wasn't, they didn't stumble on him. They targeted his ass. So I agree with you there on that. All right, what All right. Do you got? Uh, Cody, I, I already mentioned uh, one of the players, Cody Ford. Cody Ford was uh, not uh, very good yesterday. Uh, I'm still very optimistic for him, you know, long term. Uh, I just think it might it might be best inside, you know, move him inside to where, uh, you know, Spain is this year. And come on now, give me a, give me an interior of, uh, of Ford, Morse, and Feliciano for the next three years. Yeah, I'll take it. You know, go find your right tackle with your $50 million in cap space. So Ford, uh, you know, I'm going to snatch a game check up from him. And uh, and TJ Yeldon, uh, you know, is, is, is the other guy I'm going to go snatch a game check from because you, you just you, you can't put the put the football on the uh, on the carpet at the 10 at, at the 10 yard line. I agree fully with both your guys, Cody Ford, for exactly the reasons that you just said. I think it needs to be playing guard going forward pretty much full time. Getting Nasecki, as long as Nasecki's healthy enough to be out there, he should be the right tackle. Ford should be inside. And if he can't play, if he's not good enough to start a guard, maybe he shouldn't be starting at all right now. I just don't think he's any good at this point, at least when it comes to playing right tackle and Yeldon for the fumble. And also, by the way, it didn't end up mattering because it was a penalty on it. But on that kick return, that would have been a kick return for a touchdown by the Bengals. Got notified by a holding penalty. It was TJ Yeldon. I'm 99.5% sure it was him that completely whiffed on a tackle. If you're going to make this team and be active on game days and play special teams, you got to make those plays. So them two for sure. And then my third one, man, I got to say Josh Allen because as many good things as he did, I don't think we're having this type of discussion about any third or fourth quarter drama if he doesn't throw that ugly pass. So just that one play alone, if nothing else, for me, let he Josh Allen lands on the game check portion of our awards. Next one, unsung hero. Who you got? Well, yeah, as far as this award goes, I, I think the the ones that I would choose from, you already alluded to in your game balls, probably uh, uh, Gore and Hyde. But I'll go with Hyde just for you know how enjoyable that uh, that play, the Kevin Johnson sack was to watch for people that you know love the X's and O's as much as you know guys like us do. I mean, the leadership that that he provides back there and, uh, you know, the fact that he was, you know, we talked about day one, uh, you know, Frank Gore signing, you know, Mika Hyde was may have been Sean McDermott's first signing, uh, you know, when he came here. And it shows, man, it shows he is he is an absolute coach on the field right now. And and, and that's invaluable back there with uh, with the way the secondary has come together. He, he's a big, big part of it. 
All right, well, for mine, I'm gonna go about. I'm gonna go with somebody that we haven't even mentioned on this episode yet. I thought Jordan Phillips had a very good game. He had a big sack, three tackles. He did have one dumb offsides penalty, which has become par for the course with him. But overall, I thought he played a very good game. And last Bills thing here, have you noticed that both Jordan Phillips and Harrison Phillips are starting to take a lot of snaps away from Star Lodelay? Star Lodelay is becoming a very irrelevant part of this Bills defense more and more. I think it was Joe B who had an article up. He only played like three snaps in the entire fourth quarter. You could definitely see a shift in uh, the rotation starting to come with him. Yeah. Um, look, uh, you know, in both the Giants and Bengals games, when you're up two scores, I think that's what you're going to see. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see if it continues. You got a New England team that, all, you know, can sit there and throw the shit out of the ball. And then all of a sudden, Bill Belichick decides, you know, that he's going to push your, you know, your your rookie uh, first round defensive tackle around a little bit and uh, and shove Sony McHale down your throat, you know, on a given week, you know, kind of like he did with Antoine Smith, the last uh, most hyped time that uh, that these two teams played, you know, back in the Bledsoe era. So you, you never know when someone's going to try to lean on the run. All right. And it's nice to have. Um, Latule for that. You'll certainly see it against uh, against Tennessee, you know, after the New England game. So I, I don't know that he is, you know, uh, completely being written written off. His ability to contribute should be completely written off, you know, quite yet. I think it's I think it's circumstantial. It's, is it worth ten million dollars? Well, of course not. But it ain't my ten million dollars. So what the hell do I care? By the way, I know you're a big fan of calling me out on Twitter when I'm you think I'm wrong about something. But I remember last week somebody posed yeah, a question yeah, about yeah, the line, yeah, what the okay, line was okay. going to be. Yep, yep, well, guess yep, what? Yep, guess yep. what the Bills line for yep. New England is right now? Ah, uh, you're right. You're right. Seven you're and a half. Well, seven, oh, seven and a half, depending on where. Just like I told you, it was going to be. Kiss you're right. my ass. Okay. All right. So before we get out of here, I just want to spend a couple minutes talking about the Sabers. Four preseason games in. They're two and two. Latest game was Saturday night. At home in Buffalo, a fun game. I actually watched the game, a 5-3 win over Toronto. Sam Reinhardt had a goal and two assists. I thought he was the best player on the ice. Olsen had two goals. If there was any doubt about him staying in Buffalo, that doubt's got to be gone. Now, VC scored on a breakaway. That was nice. Russell Landon made his debut, and he played about almost 22 minutes exclusively with Darlene. Anyway, I want to go through the lines. We were waiting until we found out what the practice lines were going to be on Monday afternoon's practice before we started taping this. defensively. They have, and by the way, before I, I say the lines, I should note that Rissalanian is out with an illness. I'm not sure about the validity of that. Who knows if maybe that's tied to some trade rumors, I guess. We'll wait and find out. But anyway, he's out. And then Connor Sherry's not practicing. I don't remember why. Maybe a minor injury, I would hope anyway. But these were the lines. Defensively, Darlene was paired with Nelson. I'm assuming Nelson is just in for Rissalanian. It sounds like it's going to be them two, at least for a while. Scandella was paired with Miller. And McCabe is with Yoki Haru. Those are the three main guy or three main pairings. Then you got Gilmore and Borgen on the fourth. When it comes to the forwards, this is a little intriguing. Eichel and Reinhardt are together and they're with Olafson. I thought it might have been VC, but it's with they're with Olafson at practice on Monday. Skinner is on the line with Johansson at center and Akposo, who maybe is in as a stand in for Sherry, not practicing on a line there. Uh, you got VC, who is with Rodriguez, who's playing a wing, and Casey Middlestat centering that line. And then the fourth line, you got Gergeson, Sabaka, and Tage Thompson with Cousins has been 
working in and out of line. So he's kind of an extra guy right now. You got Ellie Esplin and Lazar as a fifth line. I don't think any of those guys are going to make it. But based on those lines today, what you're seeing with those, what stands out for you? What's, what's your take on those? All right, little surprise that is Olafson up top with Eichel and Reinhardt uh, because I thought VC was very good with them on Saturday night. But that's not to say that Olafson, uh, you know, can't be good with them as well. There's flexibility there. I think the big thing is it's going to be Eichel and Reinhardt, uh, or it looks like it's going to be Eichel and Reinhardt to start the season. And that was a big question, you know, coming in. Was it going to be Eichel? Was it going to be Eichel and Skinner, or was it going to be Eichel and Reinhardt? Right now, it's looking a lot like Eichel and Reinhardt with a uh, you know with a middle six finisher up there, either Olafson uh, or VC, you know, for now. Unless they get starving or they're down a goal in the third period or something like that, then obviously you'll probably see Skinner slide up. Skinner and Johansson seem like a uh, seem like a match with Akposo, like you said, quite possibly holding a spot maybe for Sherry, or maybe he gets a look there. We'll see if uh, come Wednesday night if Akposo gets a chance to um, uh, to play there. The big news out of that combination is Johansson staying in the middle. Yeah. You know, that's that's big because, you know, I, I think they're really down on Casey Middlestat right now. Middlestat centers, VC and Rodriguez, you know, that could be uh, somewhere where Rodriguez slides into the Middlestat spot and Akposo comes down or Sherry comes to that line uh, if the Sabres have the balls to send Casey Middlestat to uh, to Rochester, and they very well may. You know, uh, listening to Paul Hamilton a little bit this morning, he said that he feels like the team's down on Middlestat. He didn't rule out the possibility of Middlestat starting the season in Rochester. So, you know, we'll have to see there. You know, there could be movement there. And then, you know, you, you got your whooping boy line with Gergensen, Sabaka, and Thompson. Uh, and then your likely Rochester line of Ellie Asplin and Lazar. I thought Curtis Lazar had a chance to, um, you know, to sneak into a uh, a fourth line, you know, uh, eight to twelve minute role. Right now, it looks like he's on the outside looking in. Uh, it's starting to take shape. You see a couple uh, combinations of of two. You know, you start to you start to figure out where that uh, where that number three addition to each line will uh will come from but it's it's a lot more you know it's becoming a lot more predictable you know now that the uh you know the rochester camp started today as well all right let's wrap this up your final take we call it the puck drop what do you got this week oh it's a pretty brief one for me and and we discussed this player um you know at points but you know i i am Known as a guy that was anti-tank, all right, uh, certainly locally with the Sabres, also now on the on the more egregious side with the uh, with the Dolphins. I think it's it's bad for everything, and I just find it to be ineffective. And I'll give an example as to what I believe is an effective way, you know, to bring a roster down and build it back up and be ready to win in the, in the shortest period of time. And I look no further than, than the two bill safeties. All right. There was no doubt that Sean, that this roster needed to be remade. Okay. But you don't have to tear the whole thing down for the course of an entire season to remake a roster. Okay. The bills are further along because in that very first Sean McDermott free agent year, they went out and they signed 
two under-the-radar safeties in Mika Hyde and Jordan Poyer, who are a huge, huge part of what looks to be a good football team this year. You know, they didn't sit there and trade away Minka Fitzpatrick. They didn't sit there and, you know, just stop doing business entirely on the free agent side of things like the Buffalo Sabres did for two years to get one player. They kept doing business. They went and got guys that would grow, all right, in their culture or whatever, whether you believe in that buzzword or not, all right, is is not relevant to this point. They built the right way. They took it down the right way, all right, by simultaneously bringing in guys that would bring it up at the same time. And that is how you turn around, okay, a football team in two or three years. Not the way the Buffalo Sabres did it. Not the way the Miami Dolphins are trying to do it. The blueprint's been set by Bean, by McDermott, and a big part of that blueprint that I will always look at is the signing of the two safeties, Mika Hyde and Jordan Poyer, in uh, in season number one when McDermott came aboard. All right, boys and girls, that is going to do it for another episode. Big thank you again to Marcel Louis Jacques from ESPN.com. Lots of fun to have him on. Loved hearing about his first experience covering a Buffalo Bills regular season home game at New Era Field. That was some cool stuff. Thanks as well to my man, Tone Pucks. Pat with Pucks. Always like getting together with him. Coming up on the show Friday, it's Patriots Week. I got Zach Cox, Patriots beat writer for NESN in Boston. We'll talk about his life and his career, and we'll spend plenty of time getting you ready for that big battle of the unbeatens on Sunday. Buffalo against New England. New Airfield and Orchard Park is going to be a great game. Zach will have plenty of perspective, especially from the New England side of things. Also on the podcast Friday, I'm going to have a movie review, Rambo Last Blood, that comes courtesy of Sean Chandler from the Sean Chandler Talks About YouTube channel. So look out for both of those on Friday you have not yet done so already, please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast right now. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere feature award-winning podcasts are found. Also, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pamaran Tweets. I constantly got news, updates, podcast polls, upcoming guests, things like that, promos. So go there at Pamaran Tweets. Thank you again, as always, for listening. I truly appreciate each and every single one of you. I really, truly mean that. It means a lot. You take a minute, an hour, whatever it may be, out of your day, once or twice a week to listen to me, it means the world to me. So thank you very much. Have a good week. Be back on Friday. We'll have plenty to talk about. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.